I'm Chris Stuchko, co-host of the Ninth Grade Experience Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, have I got something cool for you to check out. Behind the Mic, Voices of the EPN, an inspiring and engaging podcast brought to you by the Education Podcast Network and hosted by EPN's founder, Christopher J. Nessie. So much cool stuff to learn. You're going to have fun listening. Check it out now. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Elizabeth Bro, PhD. She is the author of History According to SAT, a content guide to SAT reading and writing. Oh, this is so cool. I, I wish I had this book when I was in school and had to take the SAT because she's going to share with you strategies for understanding how to approach the history passages. Oh my gosh, what a great talk. So much to learn. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening. And into the, by the way, it would be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? You know, say some nice words, maybe give me five stars. Uh, you know, what do you think? Huh? That would be so cool. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Maletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dot Steve Maletto. Elizabeth Brove, PhD, is a lifelong educator, parent, and author. Elizabeth has over 25 years of experience as an English teacher for grades 7 through 12, including co-teaching an interdisciplinary English history class that produced a magazine and for which she won the College Board Bob Costas Award for Excellence in Teaching Writing. She has also taught a variety of university classes in composition, literature, technical writing, public speaking, and women's studies. Dr. Bro is the author of History According to SAT, a content guide to SAT reading and writing, which she wrote to help students understand the history passages that comprise about 40% of passages that students read on the SAT. Her book is a 2023 Nonfiction Authors Association Silver Award winner. She has published scholarly articles, book reviews, including many about history books and lifestyle, one of which appears in Chicken Soup for the Divorced Soul. After earning a B.A. in English and History from Rutgers University, she earned a doctorate in English Language and Literature Letters from Vanderbilt University. Elizabeth resides in Albany, New York. Her hobbies include reading, walking, anti-gravity yoga, and other aerial classes, camping, canoeing, gardening, and having adventures with her rambunctious dog. For more information, please consult elizabethbro.net, and I'll have that in the show notes so it's easy to find. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me today, and uh, say hi to everyone. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Glad that you're here. And uh, I, I almost forgot. I, I didn't put this in the notes, so I, I apologize. But uh, I forgot that I wanted to ask you, what is anti-gravity yoga? Oh, okay. You, you, um, you, you, there's a silk hammock that hangs from anchors in the ceiling. Cool. And you can sit on it and swing on it and turn upside down in it and hang from it by your and do, so it for me it was a path back into physical fitness um, when I started doing it about twelve years ago. Very cool, awesome. Yeah, the uh, very cool. Sorry, I, I I knew I wanted to ask that because I had not I had not heard of that, and that's a that'd be a cool way of uh, after 
if you had a stressful day of class or something like this? Or <laughs> It releases your inner child. It's so much fun. It doesn't feel like exercise. I was, the first time I went and I sat in the hammock, I looked like a little round ball. <laughs> And the first time that we were hanging upside down and they thought we were going to pull, we were going to have to do a, a stomach, you know, crunch up to curl up to grab the rope to get back up. And my stomach muscles were like, no, nah, we don't do that. <laughs> nice, <laughs> you know? nice. But I, I persisted and cool. it turned and, you know, it led to me getting into probably the best shape of my life. So Very cool. it, it's been a good thing for me. That is awesome. Well, thanks for telling me about it. That's, that, that sure, is so cool. Sure. I, all right, so Elizabeth, let's start by talking about why you wrote History According to SAT, a content guide to SAT reading and writing, a 2023 Nonfiction Authors Association Silver Award winner. Why'd you write it? What made you say, I got to do this? Um, basically, I'd been teaching SAT for a long time, and since I about 40% of all the reading material in SAT passages on both the reading test and the writing test are... Um, historical in some way there'll be an allusion to something or the writer will be involved in current events and so they're writing to someone who's also involved in those events they're sharing the events of their day or it's a, you know a speech brought by a president or other important person about a particular historical topic you know things like that so we're talking about 40% of the material that students are getting questions wrong because they just aren't understanding what they're reading because it's like they're reading in a bubble. They don't have any context or way of connecting. Um, so I'll give you an example. There's, um, it's in the book. There's a novel that was written in like 1905 and the pen it's a pen name, Baris, Baroness Orcs. I can't even say it. It's like a Hungarian name, I think. Um, but anyway, she wasn't apparently a real person. It's a pseudonym. But she wrote a book called The, pa the Scarlet Pimpernel. And in the 1970s, when I was a kid, they made a movie of it. And I saw maybe five minutes once. Um, and it turns up on the SAT. Nice. And nice. the blurb that, you know, just a little passage, right? And so the blurb tells readers that it was written it, it's about an Englishman, a group of Englishmen who are saving French aristocracy during the reign of terror. Well, I know what that means. You know, I'm right there with you. But, you know, to a you know, 10th grader I talked to like last summer, it's like, you know, the reign of terror is part of the French Revolution. Uh, you have heard of the French Revolution, haven't you? Uh, I, I think so. This was a 10th grader. Nice, nice. This child is not going to do well on the no, SAT no, because he has no idea what he's reading. To him, it's like soap. Right. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, there was that kid. There were the students who told me that American slavery ended in 1945, you know, shortly after D-Day, I guess. Wow. Um, wow. You know, maybe we freed the slaves, you know, then or something. And I've had sixth graders tell me that they didn't, they had never heard of the American Revolutionary War. Wow. Sixth graders wow. who have attended school in the United States for their entire educations. That's crazy. And so you get a passage by Tom Paine or you get paired passages by Edmund Burke, who hated, hated, hated 
democracy, thought it was a bad idea and hated the French Revolution for the same reason. There's a set, you can get paired passages with him and basically any pro-Democrat, so any American revolutionary figure. And, you know, he's going on about Marie Antoinette and they don't know what he's talking about. It's crazy. You know, it's like if you don't know it, then of course you need all the skills and strategies that you learn in, in Khan Academy and, you know, Princeton Review. And I teach all those skills. You know, and I love Erica Meltzer's work. She's got the best breakdown of how to understand and work through the questions of anybody I've ever looked at. I use her stuff all the time. But when you know what you're reading, you don't need the skills because you just know the answer. And so I figured if kids could simply read a narrative that explained, you know, the background knowledge that I bring with me to the table, then it would help them know more answers on the test. So it was an evil plan. <laughs> it was a great evil plan because that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So I wrote. So I, I started to write it all down, and I thought I could do it in under a hundred pages, and it would take a year. So it took. Um, it's under three hundred pages, but there are pictures, and um, yeah, and it took two years. You know. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's just, at least it didn't take you ten. It's like yes, or or five or something like that, and it's done yeah. too. Well, so I, I I I I almost ended it in 1975, just because the Vietnam War was so hard to get right and encapsulate and include the major stuff that you know, so people would understand in case they read stuff, you know, pertaining to it, um, and whatever. And I wanted to stop. I was just like, I'm done. And all my readers are like, no, you have to, you can't stop in 1975. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> so hard not to. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's uh, uh, just a note. I, as a, as a kid, I, uh, one of those 10th graders actually that you were talking about a minute ago, I, uh, I drew comic books and stuff like this. And then when I first started drawing comic books until I had a friend of mine, help me figure it out. Um, I, I had some heroes that uh, you just never saw their feet because I had such a hard time drawing <laughs> feet. So, right. So that'd be kind of like stopping in 1975 with the history too. That I like. Yeah. That too, you know? <laughs> so I decided 1995 was a good cutoff point because it's within the lived lived memory of my not of my students but of their parents. Gotcha. And whereas now I'm like old enough to be their grandparent, and so my lived memory to them is history. All right. So that, you know, I had to think about where do you, where do you cut that off? And it was also a really nice relief because there was no way I wanted to have to write about the last 25 years in American politics. You know, there, there's no way I want to touch that. I don't I know how to explain it. I don't have the appropriate perspective now, you know, give it another 25 years. There you go. Totally understand. Right. right. Yeah. The, uh, um, it's, I totally understand. Believe me. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about this. Why do students need to learn how to approach historical reading passages? Because that's, that's what you're doing here. And it's so awesome because I, you know, God, I wish I'd had this, <laughs> your book when I was, when I was taking the SAT a long time ago, cause I took it without thinking that there's an approach you had to make. And there was, and always has been. Yeah, no, there is. Um, I think that if you have a basic knowledge of what happened at that time period when the passage was written, okay? So, for example, say you get something by um, 
John Stuart Mill, who lived in the 19th century. Okay, you have to assume that he's read every major political thinker who lived before him, who was who would have been available in English um, at that time. So that means he's read all of the Enlightenment figures. And he's read, you know, he's read Voltaire, he's read Diderot, he's read Rousseau, he and then go further back, he's read Machiavelli. And then before that, of course, he would have studied um, ancient Greek and Roman classics, because that's what 19th century education involved. Um, But they everybody read everybody else. And so it's like an ongoing conversation. And so the students need to know enough. They need to know the general outline of that conversation so that they can pay attention to the particulars of whatever the passage is. So, for example, when you have um, Edmund Burke, you know, driveling on about poor Marie Antoinette, you need to know that, you know, she was queen of France and then she was you know, reviled and and captured and they tried to get away and then she was killed, you know, and they cut off her head and all this stuff, right? You know, you got to know that to know why he's going on so because, um, you know, he doesn't specifically spell it out because he simply assumed that everybody who read what he was writing would already know. Gotcha. You know, so it's like, you know, it's like if you start to explain, say, a new sport to someone like lacrosse, but you you don't tell them what a lacrosse stick is or how to use it. It's like, you know, they're not going to maybe figure it out. Yeah, it's not going to go well. <laughs> right, exactly. So you have to know the context. And so what I thought of it is as what is the most, you know, superficial kind of general narrative that'll allow you to connect event A to events B, C, and D so that you understand when people write about them why they would say X, Y, or Z. That's awesome. That's like the most abstract way I can think of to put it. Yeah, but that's cool. It's not, it's, it, it's very understandable what you're talking about because it's, you know, it's a, uh, just having that approach to it, understanding that you need to, un- you need to know something about these, these writings or what they're, what's going on at the time so that uh, you have some sort of concept, I would think, so that when you look at the que- the answers that they've given you choices of, that you can eliminate the the worst possible one and and yeah and, yeah, and you'll know. Good. But you know, a lot of times, what what kids are getting wrong are questions about the author's main point. Wow. Um, because they're not picking it up, and they have trouble with questions about the primary purpose of the passage, which is translated to why did the author write it in the first place? What was the writer's goal? And they miss those a lot. And then they also, um, when the passage is talking about a nuance of democracy there, you know, or some democratic concept in a particular setting, they're very likely to misread because they assume it's about this when it's really about that. And so, you know, sort of having to take that apart and to just familiarize kids with the terminology, the language that people use to talk about stuff, because I figured, okay, most high school students can't comfortably read 18th and 19th century English. Okay, it's hard. The vocabulary is way more elevated than anything kids learn today. And 
Um, the sentences are really long. Today's writing style is very, very different. It's simpler, it's shorter sentences. And, you know, there's not this love of language permeating everything the same way that it did back then. So what I figured is that if you know what the document is basically about, then you can work your way through it. But I just sort of wanted to give kids like that leg up, you know, enough to go with, that's if you will. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Cause that's, cause just understand it, that there is a point here as opposed to just blindly throwing questions at you and, and having yeah. some sort of background knowledge is going to help you so that you, you know, you recognize a name here or you understand the time frame or, or what's going on there. And, Right. And the, the basic arc that I worked out that the SAT was using for history is basically the narrative of how democratic ideals developed and interacted with other ideas and events to and capitalism, of course, um, to create um, the United States and help it attain its place in the world today. So it's basically a narrative of where did the United States come from and how did we get to be great? That's and, it's and so, what did we do or not do wrong along the way? Gotcha. And that's so powerful just to know that. And I, I guess a yeah. big part of what you do on your own uh, and the book is part of that is to help kids understand that this is not just a random set of things yeah. here. This is, there's a point to it. And right. Look, I read a lot of, you know, Victorian children's classics as a kid, and I've read a lot of 18th and 19th century literature because that's what my job is. Um, <laughs> but um, if you're looking for that story and you know that there's a reason for the story, then you can situate what you're reading in the story. That's awesome. And realize that it's part of an ongoing, um, mostly Western conversation, but becoming more globalized as time has gone on. And, you know, so reading, I, I feel like the folks who designed it had a sneaky agenda to, you know, get people to read about what democracy means. And so that, that was one of my guideposts along the way. And it had this remarkable effect on me because it made me more patriotic, awesome. <laughs> which I, hadn't been thinking about it at all when I started to write. I was like, okay, what do you need to know? Okay, you need to know the wars and, and things like that. So, but you also need to know why things were important to other people. Um, an example is um, the Boer Wars, Boer, B-O-E-R. Okay, they were a series of wars in South Africa between the English and the Dutch black people were sort of incidental to the whole thing, except that um, they were treated very badly during this thing, but they weren't like main players. It was a colonial war and it's all over, you know, turn of the century literature. Everybody's talking about the Boer Wars all the time. Well, yeah, they set up the, the groundwork for South African apartheid. So all of a sudden it became very relevant. This goes up back a hundred or so years and before that it was different. And so I put it, you know, but it, it sort of pulled things together in ways that surprised me also. Gotcha. That's, that's cool. I, I can be that. I, I can imagine that you, you kind of discover you're being enlightened to this as you're, you're seeing the patterns and so forth. I learned so much. <laughs> that's so cool. It was really fun. I can imagine it. Um, Let's let's use that to kind of 
segue into this because one of the things that I can imagine is people are listening to us talk, um, especially if you happen to be a uh, sophomore in high school, um, that you're saying, they're thinking, I, I, I don't have a degree in history. I don't have a you know, degree in English literature. I, do I have to be a lover of history? Do I have to have such an interest in history to do well at this? No, no. But also, I mean, think about it this way. Nobody complains that they have to know math. Right. Everybody right. just assumes it, even if it's boring. Right. Right. Your teachers don't care if it's boring. And furthermore, I think it's important to be able to read this stuff because it's about us. Right. It's our origins as Americans. And there's basic stuff that every well-educated American ought to know like how and where our country came from and how we got to be where we are today. You got that right. Yeah, so you need to know it. It's part of being a competent adult citizen, I think, um, more than the test. And so it's like if you know the big ideas, but you're having trouble getting through the sentences, the idea of my book is that you'll know enough that you'll be able to sort of work your way through it and get why it was written and what the author's goal was and even hopefully have a step, you know, be able to take a stab at some of that vocabulary that is also about 40% of the test in gotcha. some way or another. There's a lot of vocab questions on the test. So, you know, there, there's all these kinds of, of different ways that knowing more is helpful. Excellent. That's, you know, it's, it, and so it just kind of s- speaks to itself about, uh, you know, t- taking time to understand that there are, things that you can do to be better. And, and that leads me to, I mean, you, you, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, you teach SAT reading and SAT writing. I mean, can you talk about what a common issue is that you find that your students um, have as they prepare for the SAT? I mean, what's something that you run into? Well, obviously lack of historical knowledge, um, but also vocabulary, Um, vocabulary, vocabulary, vocabulary. Um, They, quote unquote, took um, vocab off the present iteration of the SAT um, about 12 years ago, but they didn't because all the words are still on the test. They just don't tell you to study them anymore. As a result, my students get a lot of vocabulary questions wrong. But, you know, and I can recommend that they study, but it's not, you're, you're not supposed to do that anymore. You know, the SAT schools I've taught in used to have a big vocabulary component. Now they don't. You know, it's getting put back in for the next one, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, but but those two things. And then also um, sometimes just erroneous assumptions, like they, they just jump to conclusions that, you know, don't make any sense. And they also don't really always read questions carefully. And they don't read answer choices carefully. They don't read all the way through to the end. So a common SAT trick is that the first half of the answer is right, but the second half is wrong. And so they get a lot of people and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. So, I mean, the tips, the the strategies and tips are all very, very useful. And, you know, like I said, you know, my book is just to sort of provide that extra. And also for a kid who, for whatever reason, can't take those classes. Right. Right. So that, that was the other, this is an alternate way. So if you can't stand those drills or your parents can't afford it or whatever, you know, you still have a way that you can get ready for this test. 
Oh, I love it because that's that's something that uh, you know just understanding that there's strategies and understanding what you need to look for and and trying to prepare for that is so important. I, I've learned that over, especially once I became a principal. It was like I, I entered this whole new world of a high school, you know, and I became a high school principal that um, of understanding the strategies that could help the kids do way better. And uh, and it's cool that you, you teach those strategies and that you've written a book for it because. This, this understanding how you approach reading something. I mean, I, one of the problems I had was that I'd forget what I, why I was reading it. It's like, ah, oh, that's not why I'm reading it. That's, that's not- yeah, I, I, there's there's some good circling you can do. You know, you, you make a bracket around the main idea when you find it and you circle all the transition words because um, very often the author's main point is going to be stated right after a transition. And so if you circle all the transition words, you've sort of got yourself a a sort of like, I think of it as sort of like the spine of the article. It goes here, then it goes, you know, sort of like a wavy line or something. But um, if you have that, you can follow the argument because whatever comes before the transition is going to be the old idea or something that the author is having a problem with. And then after the transition, we're going to find out what the author thinks. So circling transitions, I teach um, looking for the, you know, the divide between the old idea and the new idea. And then you also use the transitions to find counter arguments and things like that. So there's signals in the writing and you can teach kids how to do that as well. So that's a skill that I teach all the time. And, you know, um, I got it from Erica Meltzer's books on SAT prep, which are amazing. Um, But she really does a very good job of breaking down how um, a passage is likely to be put together. And it's extremely useful. (laughs) Just knowing, I mean, I, I think a big part of being successful on it is, is going into it, not, you know, where you do understand that there are strategies for doing better at the way you approach how it's, it's said. I mean, it's, you know, you break it down. Right. That's so, so important. One of the things I got to make sure I say this, I've, I've read where uh, there's some advice that you give students. Um, One of the things that you give them is that they need to read. Uh, What type of reading will help them? What do you think? Anything? (laughs) Reading. Um, Okay. I don't think it matters what you read and I will tell you why. My son who took the last version of the SAT when it was still scored in 2400, but he got an 800 on um, SAT reading and he did not study with me. Okay. We tried a few times. Um, I would quiz him on vocabulary and he would laugh at the idea that anybody would put such an ordinary word on the test. You know, we're talking about words like trebuchet. Okay. Which is a kind of a catapult. Oh, yes. No. Differences right now. But he knows that. But why does he know that? Oh, because he's, I didn't have, I was um, a single mom. And when I moved into the apartment the um, that we, they were little in, there was only a ca- cable hookup in the, in my daughter's bedroom. And no child of mine was ever going to have a TV in their room. So I put it in the living room, but I didn't want to pay for the cable hookup because I was poor. And so um, I raised them without TV. We had um, DVDs and we watched movies and stuff, but they didn't see TV shows. So they read. So he read, let's see, what did he read? Well, he got turned on to Harry Potter when he was seven and he became obsessed with Star Wars. And he read most of the, you know, much of the Star Wars canon. 
Um, he read Harry Potter. He read Lord of the Rings, Percy Jackson, basically a diet of steady fantasy. Nice. And he got an 800. Wow. Very cool. It doesn't matter what you read as long as it's got words. I would say graphic novels are not very helpful here because they just don't have enough words in them. They're another way of presenting the ideas. Right. And while I get that that can work for kids, I think that you need interaction with lots and lots of words. And, you know, however kids do that and whatever they want to read about is fine. That's that's cool to know that. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I've i been a big fan over the years of uh, Tom Clancy, if you ever read uh, mm-hmm. some of the books. And I was amazed at how many times vocabulary words that he used in his books appeared in um, SAT, ETS, you know, any sort of testing done yeah. by them that you, it was like reading a prep for a, for a GRE or an SAT or something like that. Right. And, I thought really hard about what vocabulary to use when I was writing, because I don't want to dumb it down. You know, I didn't want to talk down to kids or use language that didn't work. Um, so I decided that I would write it the way I talk, but that when I used a word that, you know, in my experience, kids don't know that. So I put the definition in parentheses right next to the word. So it's not annoying. You can just kind of read it, blip. It goes into your passive memory, your passive vocabulary banks, which are a lot huger than your active uh, working vocabulary. Everybody's got a huge passive vocabulary that they're not really aware of. Um, And so what I was trying to do is to increase that so that when it comes up again, you've got that oh, yeah, this is what that word means, because research shows that when you get a gut instinct about a word, you should go with it. You're going to be right about 92% of the time Wow, because of your passive vocabulary. So I took that approach as a way of letting the words sink in without necessarily bothering the reader about them. That's cool. That's that's awesome because, you know, you know, the the words that we use, I, I, I think this is it's so important. They understand that they have to come into contact and understand that there's, there, for lack of a better way of saying it, there are bigger words <laughs> than, uh, you know, that, right. are, that are used to in more academic type situations or, or however the story's being told to kind of get a point across than uh, some of the basic words that you might find in uh, some very simple type text. So, yeah, but that's, that's so cool. That, Yeah, so what I wanted was to produce something that a kid could pick up for not very much money and interact with completely on their own without any teachers or tutors or, you know, there's no questions, there's no drills, there's no lists. You just read a book. (laughs) It was the simplest thing I could think of, and I, I, I really, really wanted, you know, to give all the kids out there who maybe aren't sure why they're struggling so much, another way to get ready for this important test. It's, it, and you've done just that. It's, it's, it's great because it's a, it's an, it's a nice, easy read that gets you into the information and understanding what's going on and what happened in those time frames, And so that, I mean, you come across a document that asks you to read something, you're probably going to go, wait a second, I know some of this. So I, I it's I, the best feeling. It really is. <laughs> it's so cool. No, when I start reading a new SAT test and there's something on it by an author I recognize, I'm like, oh, goody. <laughs> nice, you know? nice. That's funny. And that could be J- Jane Eyre. 
Um, it could be, uh, you know, some, something Democrat about democracy, or it could be science. I mean, but the, I've learned an incredible amount just from teaching SAT. So, you know, if you're equipped to understand that material, it can actually be a reasonably, un, a reasonably pleasant experience, I think, for kids. It doesn't have to be such a nightmare. That's so cool, because... That's, you know, one of my least favorite memories is the, it, it was kind of a nightmare because I didn't have an approach to it except to. But, well, also, I mean, if you if you have an idea what you're reading, it's much more likely to be interesting to you. Many of my students report that they space out during the passages because they're boring, because they're lost. So you, you don't want that to happen. You know, you want to you want to give them the tools that they need to say, OK, this is what it's about. And even though I think it's boring, this person found it fascinating because they, for whatever reason, and I need to understand why they're excited. You know, nobody cares what you think, you know, it was exciting to them and they're writing out of that excitement and you have to find a way to understand that, you know, because when I was little, you know, my parents had a house full of books and there were all these novels, great English novels, and I would try and read them. And often I would find that they were really boring and because they were too hard still, right? you know, and I would come back to them in a couple of years. So, you know, you want to give kids that, nice. you know, that ability to grow into something quickly by picking up, okay, this is a conversation about extinctions. This is a conversation about um, DNA research, you know, genetic research and the concerns about it. But, you know, if you already know that there's an issue, it's a lot easier than if you're only finding out about the issue when you started reading the passage. Right. You know, it's just, you know, that that level of familiarity uh, for background knowledge is, again, research shows that it really has a big impact on reading scores. That's so important. It's so important to know that. I, You know, uh, one of the things that I, I got to make sure that uh, I share is that you talk about... Um, being familiar with historical documents and I, could you just talk about what what it is that the students need to recognize about the documents because i think it fits in really well right here <laughs> well um i know okay it's a sort of roundabout answer um i i understood back when the common core um was implemented and i'm not saying good or bad about common core this is just a factoid um but the, the, one of the ideas is that American high school graduates ought to be able to read the original founding documents of the United States in their original 18th century language. Now, I don't think he meant that you had to keep all those funny S's that look like <laughs> F's, which are always so much fun to read. Yes. But, you know, even when they modernize the, the, the letters and all that kind of stuff, you, you ought to be able to work through that. Even if you don't know what all the words mean, you ought to be able to get the basic ideas of, you know, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the amendments, the Bill of Rights, you know, all those important documents. Um because they're how our, what our society is based on. So you need to understand that because you live here. Right. So that, that, that's what I meant. So that's why, like, I think I quoted, I, I think I put in the Gettysburg address because it was so short and I put in a couple other things just to, um, 
you know, the ones that turn up most, most frequently right. that you might get, um, you know, from, because multiple parts of those documents have appeared on the SAT over the years. Um, you know, you get tons and tons. So you need to know what people were concerned with, you okay. know, and once you can sort of snap it into place in the, in a mental timeline, then you know what you're dealing with. Oh, it's perfect. It makes so, makes so much sense. And, and I think just being able to know, to have some knowledge of what it is that they're talking about, you don't have to be a, you know, complete expert on uh, the Magna Carta or something like this, but uh, to know what it is they're referencing, you know, um, the, uh, it's, it, I would think is a big part of being able to answer a question about it. Then if you know something about it, um, good stuff. Yeah. I, so let's talk about vocabulary for just a minute. Are, are there key academic words that a student should definitely know that kind of give a clue to what the question is asking? You know, like if it's kind of like the, the math terms that, you know, you know that it's a, it's a multiplication. It's not so simple for, for vocab. Um, I mean, you need to be able to know what the question is asking you, and some of them are a bit coded. So, like, you know, when they say, what's the primary purpose, you know, they're saying, okay, why did the author think it was worth writing this paragraph? Nice. You know, how would it be different if the paragraph weren't there? You know, so so there's some sort of test jargony stuff like that. But, no, I mean, basically – you should know as many words as you possibly can. Nice. Um, and when you can't, there are ways to take a good guess. Um, like looks like spell looks like set. If a word looks like or sounds like another word, there's a good chance that they're going to be related. I routinely teach students to cover the end of an unfamiliar word because suffixes only tell you what part of speech a word is. They don't change the meaning. So an SAT doesn't test you on them. So what you do is you look at the root of the word and the prefixes and see if there's anything that you recognize. So an example is there's a root cred, C-R-E-D. It means belief or faith or trust. It comes from a Latin word, credere, C-R-E-D-E-R-E. -E -E. But in English, any word that has cred in it is going to be about belief, like your credit card. Oh, they believe you're going to pay them back that money. That's how it works. Nice. And that's why so many, you know, the, that's what all those words mean. Um, so you've got cred about money, but also you have, if someone is incredible, if something is incredible, that means it's to, to something to be true. It's not believable. Someone who's incredulous is um, not believing what they're hearing. So the usage of the word change, this is probably way too wonky, I'm sorry. That's but good. if you look at the beginning and you look at the spelling, um, you can often get there. Gotcha. Okay, and I'm sorry if that was way too long. No, what? no, it explains it a lot. It really does. Just, and once again, I would think it comes back to reading. It, it. The more you read, the more you understand, you see some of these words and you start, you know, you need to take time to understand what you just read if you don't know it. But I, I right, would... and and context is great. When I was little, I I never stopped to look up a word. I mean, you know, I would have had to actually go to a book called a dictionary and turn pages and stuff, and I never did that. So, um, one word that I never looked up at all was alacrity, <laughs> a l a c r i t y, and it means if you do something with alacrity, it means you jump up, you get up, and you're willing to go do it right now. 
And it's a very common word in 19th century fiction for some reason. And I never looked it up, but, you know, eventually I worked out what it meant. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you know. So have you tried fitting that in your, like a, like a dinner conversation, (laughs) that word? Well, no, but at least I know how to use it. Nice, nice, nice. Cool. (laughs) No, my folks had a policy that I was allowed to interrupt at dinner to ask for word definitions whenever I wanted to. Excellent. So, nice. Yeah. Very cool. Definitely encouraging curiosity there. Definitely. That's, that's awesome. I, you know, all right. So let's, let's take a look at, let's, let's kind of step into uh, stuff that you do. I mean, can you talk a little bit about one-on-one tutoring for test prep? I mean, why is it helpful for students? Well, it's helpful for a couple of reasons. Um, research shows that kids speed up as they get more accustomed with the test. They stop ha- having to read the directions and, you know, they, they have a basic idea of what the test is doing, so they're more comfortable. They, they get more skilled at recognizing the question types and getting to the answers more quickly. Um, the other thing it does is it, um, it enables me to sort of figure out with the student what's throwing them off. I have some students who have a terrible time with science passages, and others really shut down on the reading, on the history ones. You know, um, kids get intimidated if they don't know a word at the beginning of a passage. Um, one of my favorites is um, Emerson's essay called Prudence. Prudence, it means, you know, being careful with your resources, things like that. But the essay is called Prudence. And so they're already lost. <laughs> right. And it's just really sad because once I explain it to them and work through his metaphor about gardening, you know, it can take 10 minutes. But once I do that and I work, I sort of talk through the passage with them, then they can go back and they can tell me why their answers were wrong. That's excellent. So I, I really work to empower the student to do the thinking on their own and not so much you know, going by rote memorization or anything like that, because it really doesn't work for English the way it do- does for math, I think, except with grammar. And for that, we do drills. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, but what I do is that, you know, we individualize it so that way, you know, the student's getting really what they need. That's so awesome, because that's, I mean, that, you know, just as a note, I you know, I made a comment and you said that you've had this same sort of thing where, you know, when I was a kid, I would just kind of get off track because I kind of lose interest in the passage or something like this. Well, it's because I didn't understand the passage or there's something I didn't recognize about it. Or I, you know, and I was a reader. I just obviously didn't read enough of the right things. I, was, I, I Yeah, I didn't know how to read nonfiction. Gotcha. So I think it's good that kids are learning to te- read nonfiction these days. I think it's important because we have an information-based economy and things like that. But they also need to have you know a wider breadth of knowledge and so you know one of the things i would you know that really bothers me about our education system is that we have no agreed on standard of what a person ought to know and i i think that when we don't encourage students to want to know more, we're shutting down their ability for real thinking. 
that if you just take it as what it says on the paper and you're not curious, you're going to have a harder time. You know, you have to be able to convince yourself, even if it's only for a few minutes, that you really, really care about this topic. Makes so much sense. I, you know, it's funny, um, as a former history teacher and uh, as a, had a couple degrees in history, as a kid, I was fast, I, I was fascinated by history. And I had a f- father who'd stop at every road sign and we'd, he'd read mm. every sign and stuff. And, and I have, I'm like father like son and uh but the uh um what's what's interesting is that you know the more you know you start you read some of this and you make connections and you see um how things are working well i was fascinated by i did not understand when i was in class uh, i can i remember this like it was yesterday because i was too busy trying to figure out if the teacher had a game all right and if they had a game, then I would play it and I would try and win it. And the game I'm talking about is where they got their questions from the test. You know, if they're going to give us a test, where they get those questions from. And if it meant that's all I focused on was that, was it really my notes that I'm taking or was it something else? And in case of one teacher, it was the little orange boxes in the textbook. The test questions all came from those little orange boxes that we all skipped over as kids when we were reading the, the articles and stuff. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because I, I remember fully as a kid that you get uh, sidetracked by things that if you don't understand what the teacher's talking about, or if there's not some sort of time spent explaining to you um, some of the references, like, uh, um, you know, and i give you an idea, simply why things in some of the, the, car, the political cartoons from the past are drawn the way they are. Um, that there's a reason for this and stuff like this. And if, if something were to appear and uh, you don't understand what that uh, ref- is referencing, like kind of like the common way that they would portray uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt and so forth when um, he was trying to, you know, he had the great white fleet and, and uh, mm. all of that and the whole carry the big stick <laughs> um, yeah. um, talking and so forth. But uh, anyway, I just love the fact that you've done this. You've put all this information together and how to, you know, it's, here's the history. Instead of having to try and go find all these books and put it all together, um, it, it helps yeah. answer some of those questions. So, but yeah. uh, good stuff. I, you know, one of the things that uh, you do tutoring and test prep, can you talk about what working with you is like? I mean, what can a student well, expect? I often warn my um, writing students that um, I'm liable to forget that they have feelings when I talk about their writing. And so I warn them that they might feel at the end of our first session as though they're sobbing on the floor in a pool of their own blood. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. So I say that right up front because I don't want to upset people. But, you know, when we're looking at, you know, your wording and I say, well, why did you say it that way? And what if you did that? You know, I don't want to have, you know, so um, I'm demanding and I'm hands on when I work with writing and, you know, I, I try and really push kids, um, not so much on like whether the grammar is perfect, stuff like that is much more on how to develop their ideas better. Um, right now I'm in a phase of I'm making everybody do outlines. Um, but I, you know, I, I modify the approach for the kid all the time. Um, I try to, when I'm doing enrichment, I try to find stuff that the kid's interested in and I have them read books and we talk and write about the books and I teach them. I have a vocabulary, there's a vocabulary series that I like, that I use, and um, a lot of online resources. 
And when I pick stuff for them to read, I try to pick stuff that's um, going to have more complex, more complex English in it. I, I look for um, a lot of times I like to teach some of the older children's cl classics from the pre Harry Potter days. So, you know, Little Women or, um, you know, Tom Sawyer or you know, those those sorts of books where they have a wider range of vocabulary because right. authors didn't talk down to kids right. back then. And um, so they're getting, you know, so you can also sort of infuse it with some his history about what that what it was like to live back then and things like that. So you get different glimpses of, of ways of being. And so I try to pick books that sort of expand horizons, challenge you know, vocabulary and thinking skills and that are widely considered to be great books. Um, for example, um, I'm doing Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass with a sixth grader right now because so many people reference it. Gotcha. And if you get it, if you get the references, that means you understand things. Right. You know, from, from the movie The Matrix to every time anybody says they're going down a rabbit hole, you know, all these references. Nice. And so I want the kids to get the references. Because awesome. to me, getting the references is fun. I love reading books where the right where the characters talk about what they read. That's so cool. You know, I wanted to read those books too, and I've always been like that. That's so, so awesome. That's so awesome because, yeah, the more they understand that, the more then it makes yeah. sense that there's something there that the, you know, the author's using a tool. And if you yeah. have no clue, then you missed it. <laughs> you know, like, right. So, you know, I try to think of ways to fill in the gaps of what I know they're not getting in school. Um, and then when I do test prep, it's obviously based on, you know, I send you a practice test, you do it. And then we spend a long time talking about all your mistakes. One of those good ego building experiences nice, for nice. today's teen. Yeah. You got this one wrong for the, you know, you did this wrong. And why did you do that? What were you thinking there? <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I'm aware that it can be hard to, you know, deal with, you know, yeah, you made a lot of mistakes, but the learning process is about making mistakes. Cause you can know all this stuff in your head, but if you can't communicate it clearly on paper, it's not going to help you. Right. You have to be able to get it out on the page in a way that makes sense to other people. And so I, we spend a lot of time on that. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. And, and, oh, sure. and Elizabeth, before we close, we're getting close now. If someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and, or learn more, I mean, where would you send them? And also, do you have any thoughts about doing a follow-up book to the history according to SAT? Is there something else coming along? Yes, uh, I'll answer that question first. Um, I'm going to un-SAT it and expand or add a little bit, a few chapters, um, and release it again as a second edition that, that's not about the test, nice. just general. And what I'm going to add, it definitely a much bigger unit on Native American history because I don't know very much and realized that afterwards. Um, and then um, I also want to add chapters on the history of all the issues that are part of our culture wars. Interesting. Very I'm just cool. going to historicize it. Um, I learned to do this back when I taught women's studies. 
you know, when I had to do abortion day um, and I didn't want to have that same old argument that everybody always has. And so I, and, you know, I wanted to break through that because I don't believe that you could just argue and convince other people that's not going to get you anywhere. So what I did instead is I researched the history of abortion and reproductive rights, you know, and I taught it that way when I taught at Vanderbilt in the book. When I was doing the book, I did a whole big thing on women's reproductive rights because at first I felt like, how can you talk about feminism and the women's movement without talking about that? But then I realized nobody puts it on the SAT. So I, I dodged that bullet, but now I think I need to put it back. You know, the whole history of how women's reproductive um abilities have been viewed you know going back a couple thousand years to you know what each of the major religions says about it and all that kind of stuff so that people know and then people can make up their mind but at least this way they they know what they're talking about and they know that the terms of the argument have changed over times you know that it's not so clear-cut for example to determine when a life stops and starts, when we can now keep a, a baby alive that is born weighing hardly a pound. So, you know, medical technology for any thoughtful person complicates this debate. Gotcha. So, you know, stuff like that. So I'm gonna, I, what I think I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put in just what's the history of each of these issues. Interesting. Because then people are equipped to make good decisions. But I would far rather give people information than ever try to convince them to think what I think. Gotcha. You know, people have minds, and I think that we need to give them credit for being able to use information when they have it. Makes sense. So, Very cool. That, yeah, that's what I'm all about. Cool. Um, and then um, if someone wants to get me, there's actually two ways to get to my website. The first is history according to sat.com, which is easier, or um, my name, which is elizabethbro.net, and it's B as in boy, R E A U.net, elizabethbro.net. Very cool. And I'll put that information in the show notes so it's easy for them to find it. And I'll, I'll put both, but they take you to the same place, right? So Yeah, they do. Yeah, exactly. So cool. Um, so I have them. I have them there in the show notes, so it's easy to get in touch with Elizabeth. And I got two last questions for you, and uh, they go like this. These are just questions I like to ask my guests. And the, the first one is, how do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Well, there's a Dirk Bentley song, Mountain. Nice. You know, it's only a mountain, you know, just a little, you know, just a little step, a right, then a left, and a couple million more who's counting. <laughs> and then by the time you get to the last verse, he says, I'm standing on top of the mountain. So, so that song is, is sort of my approach. I like that. That's cool. Yeah. Very yeah. good. Um, yeah. So. That is awesome. I, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? What would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Yeah, I thought a good deal about this. Um, I think I would have to say my kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Singer, because I learned to read in her class. I was only four. And, um, but I have a very clear, vivid memory of sitting on the floor in the classroom while she explained the rule about silent E 
at the end of a word. And I remember the moment when that clicked. And I still have the book that I earned when I could read by myself that she wrote her name in. That's it's awesome. Heirloom. <laughs> so, yeah. So probably her. That's very cool. Awesome. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for spending time with me today. You've created an awesome supportive tool for learning strategies for taking the SAT. And plus, you've got really cool history there that's going to help them understand some of the stuff without having to you know, check all you know, a bazillion books out of the library. And your book, yeah. your book, History According to SAT, a content guide to SAT reading and writing, is a great vehicle for helping students understand how to approach historical reading passages on the SAT. Wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.